there. Well, now I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. As you are turning there, let me, let me ask you if you do this. I, I know not everyone fits into this category, but some of you are like me. And that is you, uh, you enjoy listening to podcasts, you've got different interests, and you enjoy listening to podcasts and those particular interests. Maybe some of you also uh, enjoy listening to audiobooks. I know I've talked to some people, and they're always telling me about what they're listening to, what book they're listening to. And so if you fit into kind of one of those two categories, my question is, do you often do what I do when listening to podcasts? And that is this, do you change the audio speed? Do you do that? I sometimes, you know, particularly depending on who am I listening to, you know, you can just crank it up to 1.2, maybe 1.5. And, and for me, there's something exhilarating about getting through it more quickly. Even if I'm learning, you know, there's just a certain sense of efficiency and productivity. I'm driving along and I'm listening to this podcast at a faster speed. All the dead time is removed. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, George, that's exactly what we do to you. If we miss a message, we go on YouTube and you know what you sound like? No, I don't want to even, I don't want to even know. Just that, that's just, you just keep that to yourself. But, you know, there's just something, there's just something wonderfully controlling and powerful about being able to turn up the speed. Technology allows us to do that. But, you know, we can do that with a podcast. But we can't do that with life, can we? So here's my question for you. How well do you handle those situations where in reality you'd really like to turn up the speed? You know what I'm talking about? Those hard situations, the complicated situations, those weighty in life situations where, you know, it just feels, if I could just speed up time and just get through this and get to the other side of this, this problem, this complication, How well, do you handle, how well do you handle those situations? Let me reword the question slightly. And I'll ask it this way, a little more directly. Are you a person who is resilient? Right in the midst of those really hard situations, the difficult situations where I just, you know, somehow I just wish I could kind of just fast forward this. I just wish I could turn up the speed to this, this season in my life, this complication in my life. In the midst of dealing with one of those places, are you a person who is resilient? Now, as you mull over that question, Let's now come back to our series in Revelation. As we've been observing over the last few weeks, the book of Revelation is written to seven different, seven specific churches in Asia Minor, which is now the western part of Turkey. Not only is this book written to, specifically to these churches, in chapters 2 and 3, each of the churches is is addressed individually, right? This is what we've been looking at. In essence, in, in those two chapters, each church gets its own little letter. And in each of these letters, in different ways, Jesus is challenging these churches, and I think ultimately challenging us as well, to, to overcome the things that can get in the way of, of following him. 
And there are all sorts of issues, as we've seen, that, that have been addressed. And, and as we'll see this morning, that includes those situations maybe where we just like to turn up the speed just a little bit. This morning, we come to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Let me show you this map again. So we, to recall, we started in Ephesus. We've worked our way up to Pergamum, and now we're working our way down. That is the order in which these letters appear in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So in chapter 3, we come to the next to the last letter, the, the church at Philadelphia, right? Of course, we know, of course, we think about Philadelphia. We think about that city not too far away, that city of brotherly love. Interestingly, the city was founded by a king known as Eumenes II, and he was a king whose brother had shown a great deal of personal loyalty to him, and so really the city is named in honor of his brother's loyalty. Now, in this ancient city, by the time you get to the 6th century, it is clear that there is a well-established and I think somewhat influential Christian community that is thriving in the city of Philadelphia. In fact, this, the ancient city sits under a very modern city, so there's only been a limited amount of archaeological work done. But when you visit that limited amount of archaeology of, of the ancient city of Philadelphia, one of the things that strikes you are these massive pillars and these pillars, I'll show you the next slide as well, these pillars once held up a large Christian church built in the 6th century. So by the time we get to the 6th century AD, there is a thriving Christian community, a very influential Christian community in the ancient city of Philadelphia. But that's not true in the 1st century. For the Christians in the first century, their experience was very different. For these Christians in the first century, their, their lives had gotten more complicated because they had become followers of Jesus. And as it turns out, I think they were going through one of those, they were going through one of those seasons where you just wanted to kind of hit the dial and can I just speed this up a little bit? Now to understand what they're going through, let's now come to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Okay, wow, there's a lot going on here, right? So what exactly is taking place among this kind of fledgling group of followers of Jesus? What's going on here? Well, again, note the reference to the synagogue in verse 9. And also note this, this kind of reference to opening and shutting doors. Because here's what I think is going on. And, and in some ways, we've already seen this. We saw this in the letter to the church at Smyrna. To understand what's going on, let me just remind you uh, that in the Roman world, Jews 
had a kind of a unique protected legal status, uh, which came with certain privileges. And apparently, as Christianity expanded, I think in different situations, it was the case that Jews wanted to distance themselves from this radical new movement so that their protected legal status would not be put in jeopardy. And so I, I think in simple terms, here's what's happened to these early Christians. I think undoubtedly some of them are coming from a Jewish background. They've been well connected in the synagogue. And, you know, that's where your family is. That's where your social network is. That's just, that's it's kind of been your life, but now they become followers of Jesus. And in becoming followers of Jesus, because there were people in the synagogue that wanted to ensure that their legal status were, was protected, in essence, these Christians, they're, they're kicked out. We don't want to have anything more to do with you. You are no longer welcome here. You are cut off because we don't want anyone to think that what you are doing is associated with what we are doing. So... You need to get out, and we're going to close the door behind you. I think that, that's what has happened to these early followers of Jesus. As I read this, uh, my mind goes back to a conversation I had as a teenager. I was 16 years old, I was traveling with a group of college students in the Middle East. We were spending the night at an Anglican guest house on the suburbs of the city of Cairo in Egypt. And in the course of dinner, I ended up seated across the table from a missionary. And as we're talking and he's learning more about me, he tells me rally, this, this very weighty and heavy story about a young man who is just a few years older than I am. And he describes how this young man, through God's providence, had become a follower of Jesus. But in becoming a follower of Jesus, he had been kicked out of his family. In fact, as he, he described in detail what was going on, he in essence described a situation where his parents, his family, were now acting as if he were dead. Everything had been closed behind him. And here I'm, you know, I'm 16, I'm hearing this story, I'm thousands of miles away from home, and there was just a weightiness to it, to think about what would that experience be like, just to be cut off from all that has been part of your background, from your family, from everything that is familiar, to be cut off from your support system, and, and just to kind of feel the weight of that, that's, that's kind of where I was at, just sitting at that dining room table in that Anglican guest house. And so that's, that's what's happened to these early followers of Jesus in the city of Philadelphia. So just for a moment, just kind of feel, <laughs> just let the weightiness, let the heaviness of that sink in, of what they were going through. And as, as, you, feel, as you feel the weight, the heaviness, Listen again to how Jesus introduces himself. How does he just introduce himself? He says, I'm the one who is holy and true. And I'm the one who holds the key of David. Now, this appears to be an allusion back to a scene 
recorded in the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah 22, we read this. It's in reference to a guy named Eliakim. I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And apparently what Isaiah is predicting, he's kind of predicting a change in who will be what you might describe as the master of the palace. That is, this was a rather unique role, a powerful role in the entourage of the king. This was the person who held the key. It was the key that opened every door in the palace, even the key to the king's treasury. And so now Jesus uses this image to communicate his own authority his own sovereignty. I'm the one who holds the key. Now, as Jesus, as Jesus addresses the situation, I want you to notice really two observations that he makes as we continue uh, reading through this. And, and I'm going to ask you, you've got you to follow me carefully because the two observations can be a little bit hard to follow because they are interspersed. To show you what I mean, let's go back to verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, in essence, Jesus, he, he makes two different statements here. But it can be hard to follow because what he does is he, he starts the first statement, then he goes to the second statement, then he comes back and finishes the first statement, okay? So let me show you what he's doing. First of all, the first statement is, you know what, I know your deeds. And he picks up this thought later in the verse, right? I, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. So the first statement is really all about the people in the church. The first statement is, look, Jesus says, look, I know, I know what you're going through. Look, I know this door has been closed. I know this has been weighty. I know right now it feels like you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. You have held on. Now just think about their situation for a moment and what we can learn from it. I, I think it is true that for some, for some of us here, there may be situations where your commitment to Christ makes certain relationships more difficult, right? Even as we're preparing to go through Thanksgiving and Christmas, it may be the case that, you know, there are going to be some people you interact with over the holiday season that they, they can maybe just be on edge with you because they know your, your faith commitment, they can treat you differently in conversations. Maybe there are people in your family like that. So it can be the case that just like this church in Philadelphia, uh, we, we may feel kind of like that, that there's certain doors that are closed because we are followers of Jesus. But I also think there, there's a broader application here because more generally, I think over the course of your lifetime, isn't it the case it is our, is our life experiences kind of pile up over the years, isn't it the case that at various situations we look back and it's like these situations felt like closed doors. You know, I thought that job would be a good fit. 
It had so many possibilities. I thought I was ready for it. I prayed earnestly about it. I made the finalist pool, but, but I wasn't chosen. It became a closed door. You know, I thought this job, this opportunity would be a great next step, but it never materialized. I thought this relationship would continue to develop and flourish, but it didn't. It became a closed door. Do you know those experiences? And you know, I think part of the pain of closed doors it's just a reality. There are often things that happen to us, things that really aren't necessarily in our control, right? The, the truth is often the doors are closed by somebody else. And you know those experiences because in some sense it just feels like something, something's been shut off, something has been closed, Closed off from the things we had hoped for. Closed off from certain opportunities that we had anticipated. Closed off from certain dreams that we thought might be fulfilled. And the doors just close. So Jesus says, look, I know your deeds. I know what you've gone through. And notice he continues to say that throughout these letters. He wants us to hear, look, I know what you're dealing with. He says to this church, look, I know you have little strength, yet, yet you've, you've remained faithful, but I know this has been draining, this has been hard, because this, this door was closed. So the first thing Jesus says is he, he makes an observation just about, about the church and the people in the church and what they're going through. But the second observation focuses on what he is doing, right? He says, see... I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So what exactly is this open door? Well, that's generated a lot of conversation. I think in broad terms, what he's describing is, is I've opened up to you the kingdom of God, right? Remember what he's just said, I hold the key. <laughs> I hold the key of David. I hold the key that brings you into the presence, into the riches, into the treasures of all that God desires for you. And so in essence, Jesus says, look, I know this door has been shut. I know you feel cut off. I know this isn't what you have planned, but I also want you to see that this door is wide open. And I'm inviting you to a new way to live. It's a way of life that entails a new relationship with God, new community, empowered by my spirit who will give you a new identity, a new sense of purpose. And this is wide open. No one can shut it. So Jesus makes these two statements. Now what I find really fascinating is the fact that in essence, he interrupts himself, right? Again, notice what he says. He says, look, he starts with, you know, I know your deeds, right? Statement one. Then he moves over here to, and by the way, I'm opening a door for you that no one can shut. Then he goes back to statement one. Yeah, I, I know your deeds. I know that this has been weighty, but you have been, remained faithful to me. 
So he starts over here, he puts this other statement right in the middle, and then he comes back to statement one. I've got to tell you, this, this doesn't sound very spiritual. This is just the way my mind works. So I was thinking about, I was really thinking about that this week, and what did I think about? <laughs> A Reese's peanut butter cup, right? You start with the chocolate, there's that peanut butter right in the middle, and you come back to the chocolate. And in a similar way, Jesus, he starts with where they're at. The reality, the weightiness of the fact that they've experienced closed doors. He goes to the truth that he is opening a different door, and then he comes back to their own experience. So why does he do that? Well, I think he does it because he wants us to see both of these observations together. Right? I mean, the, you know, the beauty of a Reese's peanut butter cup is you get, the, you, get the, you get that flavor all together. And in a real sense, Jesus is saying, look, I want you to hold both of these observations, both of these truths together. And realize that both of them can be at work. And I think this is really significant for us. And here's the reason why. Because even as Jesus brings, right, he brings these two truths together. Look, I know your life is hard. I know this door has been closed. I don't in any way deny the fact that this has been draining and difficult. And let's just acknowledge that. But also, I'm opening a door. And no one is able to shut this. And this is the door to the kingdom. It is a door to a new way of life that you can experience even now. Even as you're also dealing with this door that seems to be closed. Jesus wants us to see these together because I think too often we pull them apart. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, maybe my life gets complicated. It hasn't gone according to plan. And, and, and some things have been shut. And for some of us at times it just feels like they've been shut unfairly. Opportunities cut off. You know, expectations cut off and now I'm I'm standing behind this closed door and it just it just kind of feels like something's really been cut off and like that's the end and so if we're not careful we work with the assumption if life gets hard then God's not at work or maybe over here things really seem to be going great and saying Things seem to be falling into place and, 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 and just kind of have clear evidence of God's faithfulness. And over here we can get stuck with, if God's at work, life won't be complicated. But what Jesus is doing in bringing these two statements together, I know life is hard, but I'm opening a door. What he is doing is he's challenging those simplistic assumptions. And I think he's inviting us He's inviting us to a different way of life. And ultimately, he's, he's inviting us to a life that in, over time will develop resilience. So, how do we do that? What does that entail? How do we, how do we develop 
resilience here. How can I, how can I really hold together, right? And then be truthful about, yeah, this is really hard. This has entailed a sense of loss. This feels like a closed door, and yet it's not the end of the story because God has opened this door to a new way of life, which I can embrace even now, and he is empowering me through the work of his spirit. So I, how can I hold those together? Even if it's draining, tiring, disappointing, how can I hold them together so I'm not simply overwhelmed or incapacitated. Likewise, for those of you who are parents, how do you, how do you help your kids hold them together? How do you help your kids develop resistance? Well, I think we, we have some clues in this text, and let, let me just kind of just make two very foundational observations for you. You know, how do we do this? Well, first of all, I think it requires a particular mindset requires a particular mindset. It requires a mindset that really understands who Christ is and what he is doing. Remember how he introduces himself. I am the one who holds the key. And it's an acknowledgement of his authority and his sovereignty. And I think we have to wrestle with that a bit because if we're honest, the more we think about it, the more countercultural that affirmation is. Because whether we're really attuned to it or not, let's be honest, part of the kind of cultural messaging we receive is this. The more successful you are, the more diligent you are, the more you know, studious and responsible you are, the more you will gain control over your life. Right? I mean, we even, you know, for those of us who are parents, it's like we want, we want to kind of set our kids up for success. We want to make these choices so they have good options. And we want, you know, get a good education, choose a good career path, and then you'll be financially responsible. You'll have the resources you need. And kind of the underlying expectation sometimes culturally is, and this is the path for you to have the most control over your life. <laughs> then we're confronted with Jesus who says, excuse me, I'm the one who has the key. And you know the, the interesting thing in the ancient world? There's only one key. There's just the master. If you had met me in my 20s, in my early 20s, and we had had a conversation about, you know, kind of just talk, let's just talk about some goals, kind of how you see your life unfolding. If we had had that conversation... I am pretty confident that you would, walk, you would have walked away from that conversation thinking, wow, this guy's really got his life figured out. He's really, he, he really knows what's, you know, what the next steps are going to be. He's got it all planned out. There was a wonderful plan. But the question is, how much of that plan actually unfolds folded the way I planned it. Let's just say by the time I reached my 30s, particularly my mid-30s, that, that plan looked like a March Madness bracket. 
that had been completely blown up by the end of the tournament because there had been so many surprising outcomes and upsets and, you know, marked through. And this team was no longer in the tournament, so that blew the rest of that bracket. You know that feeling? That was my plan. And, and over the course of my 20s, I would say that there was a particular verse in Proverbs that really gained deepening resonance in my life. Proverbs 16, 9, which says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And that's what I'd been doing, right? I'd been planning my course in great detail, but I did not hold the key. And looking back, I can look, and I can look back at particular moments, and there were particular moments where, I, in essence, I got stuck over here because I had, you know, detailed plans, but at times there were doors closing that I didn't anticipate. And to be honest with you, at times, as I look back, I just kind of got stuck feeling like, well, this is, that, wow, that's it. It's not supposed to be this way, and just kind of gotten you know, I kind of at times would get stuck and maybe the bitterness, the frustration. I can't believe they did that to me. Why did they do that to me? You know, all of that. And yet, what I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, I was kind of on this journey of, of coming to a deeper understanding that, that I don't hold the key. And so I think to, to develop resilience, I've, I've got to remember who Christ is. And furthermore, not only do I need to remember who Christ is, I, I, I think I also, I need to remember what he is doing, right? This is, this is part of the mindset that develops resilience. And what is he doing? He is shaping me into a person that more and more reflects his image, his character, right? The Apostle Paul, in describing his own ministry, said that his goal was to present people mature in Christ, that is to see people go through this transformational process through the work of the Spirit, and this is what Christ wants to happen in each of our lives. He wants us to grow up in him. And when we realize what he is doing, we will realize that these hard situations, these closed-door situations, are often the situations where God does his deepest work in our lives. You read a little farther in this passage, in verse 10, and Jesus really acknowledges and commends this church for their patient endurance. In essence, he says, look, this has been a hard season, <laughs> you know? I know maybe some of you just want, you just want to speed up the dial, but this has been a hard season, yet you've, you've held on to my word. You've, you've kept moving forward. And what is going on in your life is you're developing patience. You're becoming new people. Along those lines, listen to these words from Romans chapter 5. 
And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but now notice this, we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And that's the same word Jesus uses in Revelation 3.10 for patient enduring. And perseverance produces character and character hope. And so what Paul was saying is, and in some ways, you know, I think he's anticipating the experience of this church in Philadelphia. This is what they're now experiencing. Paul is saying these hard places can actually be places where God does his deepest work. Because in these hard places, as we, as we take steps of obedience, it, it develops certain things within us. It develops patience and strength and stability. And it develops character because, in, in essence, our, our character is shaped by our life experiences and, and how we respond to those experiences through our responses, through the habits that we develop along the way as we deal with them. And, and Paul says, look, this, this really becomes a shaping process that will ultimately grow you in your understanding of God's hope. That often these places where if I, just, if I could just change the dial, if I could just speed it up, Often, these are the places where God does his deepest work in our lives. And so I need a mindset to understand the reality of who Christ is. He holds the key, and I can trust him in that. And furthermore, I realize that these can be places where God is at work. So even though I want to speed up the dial, even though I wish this didn't happen, it doesn't have to be a dead end. It ultimately doesn't have to be a closed door because Christ has opened the door to a new way of life, which he calls the kingdom of God. So to experience this requires a particular mindset. And I think just secondly, it requires obedience. Notice verse 11 in this passage. I am coming soon. <laughs> Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Right? It's like, oh my goodness. I know, man, you, it feels like, man, this is just a closed door and that's the end of the story. Just throw in the towel, right? It, it didn't happen the way I want, so, so what's the point anymore? And sometimes in situations, that's how we feel. Christ says, no, don't you realize I can, be, I can be at work in these hard places because I'm still opening a different kind of door to you. So what does it look like for you, even in the midst of what feels like a situation where you're cut off, what does it look like for you to continue to take steps of obedience? Hold on. And I think with that is just keep walking. Keep following me. Keep putting into practice what you know to be true. Because even though this door is closed, I've opened another kind of door that brings you into a different way of life, and no one can close that door. Maybe, maybe along those lines, you know, I would, uh, as, we're, as we're preparing to go through the Thanksgiving season and the Christmas season, just in some recent conversations, I realized, you know, this is kind of, it's kind of a, it feels like a heavy time to go through Christmas with all that's going on around our world. We have this ongoing conflict in the Ukraine. We now have this conflict in Israel. 
And with that, there's this ongoing concern, a very legitimate concern. Is this going to escalate? What's this going to look like? Even this week, I was uh, watching a video posted by a friend of mine who lives in northern Galilee, and he's recording this video on his porch, and in the background, you hear shelling. And finally, he says, I just need to stop and go into my safer. It's like, wow, this, this is the world in which we live. And I, you know, in conversations recently, I, I, just, I just found some of us, it, this is just kind of really weighty and heavy, and maybe it almost feels like, how, do you, how can we celebrate Christmas at a, at a time like this? It kind of feels like certain things have been cut off, and this is weighty and difficult. But, but in the midst of all this that is beyond our control, we come back to what, what does obedience look like? How can we go through this season of thanksgiving, this season of remembering the work of, of, of Christ and his birth and all that that entails? How can we go through this season and take steps of obedience, even in the midst of what feels like craziness and chaos internationally or culturally? You know, as a church, over the next few weeks, as we go through the Christmas season, we're just going to come back to the, to the themes of Christmas and to remind ourselves of these deep themes like faith and love and hope. And even as we go through that, I'm going to encourage you just to, you know, this is a great time to connect with others and living out these themes. It's a great time even just to have conversations, spiritual conversations with people that you know, because this is in front of us as we go through the Christmas season. And and all along the way, what, what I'm talking about and celebrating Christmas are just taking steps of obedience. Jesus says, hold on. Look, I know this is chaotic, but don't forget, I'm opening a different kind of door. So keep walking. These closed doors are never the end of the story. He challenges that, and then <laughs> I love the promise, because we get to the promise. And the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. <laughs> now just think about the imagery here. They've been kicked out of the synagogue. And Jesus says, look, I know that. But the bigger story is this. You're now being built up as a pillar in God's temple. And no one can remove you. And he is writing his name on your life. It's a powerful image. It would have resonated, I think, uniquely with some of the people who received it. Because in the ancient world, it was a habit that in some temple complexes, you would write the name of the priest on the pillars. So when you visit the ancient city of Ephesus in the upper part of the city, in the sacred civic district that was at the heart of the city, there is this small temple complex where the eternal flame was lit and surrounding that eternal flame were these pillars and written on these pillars were the names of the priest who kept the fire. God says, look, I know it feels like you've been cut off, but here's what you've got to realize. I am building you into a pillar in God's new temple. 
these things don't have to simply be closed doors because I am opening a door that no one else can close. So walk faithfully. Hold on. That's the challenge of this text. The invitation of this text. And as we remember that this morning, we're now going to come to a time of communion where we celebrate the reality that Christ has opened the door. We celebrate the reality that he has opened the door that no one can shut. So this morning as we come to this time of communion to remember the work of Jesus Christ, which brings us into relationship with God, which restores us and allows us to experience new life in his forgiveness. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Then in a moment, you can see we have stations throughout uh, the uh, room. I'm going to ask different, if you're willing, I'm going to ask one or two of you in each of these uh, sections to come forward to these stations and pick up the the trays and serve the people in your area because this is, a, this is a reminder that we are in this together. And then I'm going to come back and we will celebrate this together as we remember the way Christ has opened the door. So with that in mind, let's pray. Gracious God, as we now come to the table, we thank you that you've opened the door. And Father, I'm sure that in this room this morning, some of us, there, there are things right now, there are things in our lives that just feel like closed doors. There are situations in our lives that just feel like we've been cut off, cut off from connection, cut off from opportunity, cut off from things that we had hoped. And yet, even as we feel the weight, the draining, the disappointment of those closed doors, may we also understand you have opened another door into a new way of life. It's the cross and resurrection that makes that new way of life possible. So may we be reminded of that this morning. May we embrace that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So now I'm going to invite you to come.